Speaking of Travel is sponsored by the Asheville Regional Airport, your local connection to the world. And when you fly home, you're home. Plan your next trip at flyavl.com. Appalachian Realty. If you're looking for a home in Asheville and Western North Carolina, they'll help you find properties as unique as you are. Visit AppalachianRealty.com. Welcome to Speaking of Travel with Marilyn Ball. Sit back and be carried away to places around the world and right here in our own backyard. No passport required. Hi, this is Marilyn Ball, and you're listening to Speaking of Travel right here on News Radio 570 WWNC. Be sure to visit the Speaking of Travel website, that's speakingoftravel.net, and sign up for the Speaking of Travel Travel Club to receive the latest in travel news and travel tips. And we've got a lot going on in 2019. We're going to have some really cool giveaways. So be listening. You can listen anywhere, anytime in the whole wide world on your free iHeartRadio app. You can go to the Speaking of Travel website again, that's speakingoftravel.net. And you can follow Speaking of Travel on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Well, Happy New Year, and welcome to the first Speaking of Travel episode of 2019. We have a lot of great travel conversations in store for you this year, and I am so excited to have so many amazing people lined up to share their travel stories and adventures with us. You know, one thing I've learned over these past years of hosting Speaking of Travel from so many people is when you're stuck in your daily life, it's really easy to lose sight of what you have. But when you travel outside your comfort zone, there's always some excitement that comes from being in a new environment. You're faced with the reality of living outside that familiar zone, which, as uncomfortable as it is, gives you the opportunity to transform how you see things. So this being a new year with a clean slate, there's nothing more enlightening than ushering in change and taking a risk. It's actually a fact that a certain amount of discomfort unleashes our creative side. And who knows better than someone who stands up in front of people to make us laugh? I believe this is the greatest power anybody can have. But also, I know it takes a huge amount of letting go of your zone of comfort. You might think standing up in front of an audience, telling some jokes and getting some laughs is easy enough. But I'm here to tell you that it is not. For comedians, stepping out of their comfort zone is a job requirement. So what if you're a traveler and a comedian? Well, my guest today is best known around Asheville as the midlife comic, but he's also the inventor of a yoga product called the Three-Minute Egg. He's had quite a few passions and almost as many professions. Drum roll. <laughs> His curiosities have taken him down many roads, both literally and figuratively. Well, here to tell us about at least a few of them is my guest today, Jason Schroet- Shoulder. Jason Shoulder. Hi, Marilyn. Jason, thank you for being here today. Yeah, thanks for that great intro. Well, I'm a little tongue-tied because I'm a big fan, and it's like, oh, my God, you're in the studio. Stop it. (laughs) I love watching you perform. I've seen you a number of times, and I just belly laugh. You you only have let me know you were there one of those times. (laughs) Two times I was there. I was at another one. I believe it, but I think there was only once. Oh, no, that's right. Yeah, at uh, at the Magnetic. That's right. right. And then you were at the Not Quite Kosher Comedy Show. Which is so funny, and we'll be running again this year, right? 
right? Yeah, yeah. It was such. It was that's the most successful show I've ever done, and it was the one I was most concerned oh about. Oh my god! And tell us again, what was that called? So it's called Not Quite Kosher Comedy. Mm-hmm. And this year was on the first night of Hanukkah, which was a, uh, a mixed blessing. Uh, because people had other stuff to do. Like anybody with kids who might want to go to this couldn't go because they had to be home giving their kids presents. And then the Chabad Center, which I just am in love with the Chabad rabbi here. He's one of my favorite people. And he has his Hanukkah live on the first night of Hanukkah every year. And I had asked him, I was like, do it earlier so people can come to both. But he forgot or didn't or couldn't. He probably has to light, he probably has to light the candle at sunset. So he couldn't plan the sunset around my comedy show, which was rude. And, uh, so nobody, people had to choose between Hanukkah Live and my show. And I was proud that some of the people chose my show. I'd say a lot of people. It was a full house. <laughs> it, was it was a full standing house. room only. Yeah. It was, uh, Largely due to the efforts of two people in particular, uh, my friend Michelle Weitzmendorf. She brought a lot of people, and she's connected with the JCC, and and uh, she's pushy. Just the she's just the right kind of pushy, and so she made sure that um, she made sure that they were promoting it and staying on top of it, which was great. And then one of the comedians, Randy Robbins, who's a new friend of mine. Uh, he teaches at UNCA in the Ali program for advanced learning, meaning people at advanced stages. <laughs> uh, also advanced learning, I'm sure he's very wise. And uh, and he brought a ton of people. So between the two of them, they filled the room. I just had to you know make sure all the comedians showed up on time. And they did. They did. It ran so smoothly, yeah. and it was really great. It and was a good show. It was a great show, and people can go ahead and start buying tickets now too for the yeah. show this year in December. Yep, I keep saying I'm used to saying next year. It's weird to be saying this year already. But yeah, December 15th at the Ambrose West in West Asheville, which is as far as I'm concerned, and I don't say this to be to denigrate any other venues in town, it's the nicest venue in town. It like, absolutely they is. They really pulled out all the stops. It holds 160 people, which is the right combination of, you know, especially for comedy. It's intimate enough, but it's also enough to get a good volume of laughter in there. And the sound, they, they spared no expense on the sound, the lighting, just 100% top to bottom. Your experience at that place is great. They even have parking, although not enough for a full house, as it turns out. Well, it was a fabulous show. And I I just so enjoy you as a stand-up. Oh, thank you. And when I found out that you had, um, well, when I first met you, you had actually just invented this... What is it called? The three-minute three minute egg. egg. Yeah. You had just invented it. Yeah. Um, and that was a long time ago. Yeah. We met in 2008, and I invented it in 2005, and it took me a few years to commit to bringing it to market. And I went through a lot of different phases with that. And then finally, I was just like, well, I have a couple thousand of these sitting in my father's garage in LA. I better do something with them. And uh, and so I finally did. Now, I mean, it's, you know, it's, look, the product is used worldwide. I mean, not that I have the uh, bank account that reflects that, but um, but it is everywhere and people do use it. And still people say, how come I've never seen these before? That's That's upsetting. But, I mean, I've worked so hard to get it out there and for people to 10 years well, in, they're like, are these new? What it is. So it's an ergonomically designed yoga block. So I call it an egg. It's really more the shape of an eye. Um, a traditional yoga block is rectangular and three or four inches thick. And I now make four inches of eggs, but historically they were three inches thick and really the right size and shape to hold in your hand, but also to lay over. The idea is that they're curved. 
so that you can lay on them comfortably because I have a bad back and I needed something to be able to lay over. And I would, I'll lay over anything, like a car hood, a fence post, whatever's around. If my back hurts, I'll lay over it. So I was always trying to lay over yoga blocks and I just couldn't get them to work for me. Like either the block was in the way or I couldn't get it out of the way or I couldn't get it where I wanted it to be. And if I did, then I, then there was some problem with the other part of the box. Anyway, so I created this egg. It was a. It happened almost by accident, and um, and the minute I lay down on it, I was like, "This is the feeling I've been looking for my entire life." And I said, "Everybody's going to want these," and I thought it would be super easy to sell them, and it's not. It's really hard to. It's really hard to sell a product, no matter how good it is. You have to be a marketing genius, and I uh, am learning my limitations in that department. Well. You know what they say, a cobbler's kids has no shoes. I mean, when you're doing the marketing and you're in marketing or you're doing something else, it's really hard to do that. Yeah. So, well, we'll get it out there. Yeah, that right would be now. great. Yeah. So when you first did that, I want to talk a little bit about, you talk about layover. Let's talk about layovers. Okay. Because there <laughs> I've were, done a lot of traveling. You've done a, a lot, lot of traveling. Layovers. So I have to, I have to tell you a joke. How can you tell elephants love to travel? Uh, so they put everything in their trunk. Something well, about a trunk. they always pack their they trunk. They always pack their trunk, yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> well, I've got there. a million of them. <laughs> okay. So tell us a little bit, um, uh, like, where did you grow up? Let's start there. So where my did- first nine years were in New York. I was born in the city, uh, and then a couple years in, my parents realized they didn't want to raise me in the city. And so they moved out to Westchester, like most nice Jewish families. And we lived in Croton-on-Hudson for uh, seven years, I guess, till I was nine. And then my parents split up, and my dad and I moved to New Mexico because my mom wanted to go back to school and get her degree as an art educator. She was already teaching art, but but she wanted to have, I don't know, a master's of art education. And so, uh, And my dad always wanted to be a cowboy. And so uh, he bought us some boots, and he had a Jeep truck drop-shipped to our house in Santa Fe. And uh, we moved out to the Wild West, which was still kind of wild back then. I mean, this was 1978, and Santa Fe was mostly dirt roads. And I still remember people you know, would stop. Like, if they're driving opposite ways, they'd stop and talk to each other and block traffic, just like they were in a horse and buggy or on horseback. And they'd stay there as long as they wanted, and you were stuck. Well, when I come when we come back from the break, Jason, I want to talk about what it was like for you being a kid and going from the city from Westchester to New Mexico. Sure. Um, maybe you have a George O'Keefe moment you can share with us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm here in the studio with Jason Shoulder. He's a really great. I'll call you famous. You no, know, there don't are circles that uh, people know Infamous you. Is probably more, uh, there you go. <laughs> more accurate. Right. We'll be right back. call Asheville home for all different reasons, and they all mean a better quality of living that reflects their very own uniqueness. Whether you're looking for a funky loft in downtown Asheville, an arts and crafts bungalow in a walkable community, or a small farm to create your own artistic legacy, Appalachian Realty Associates will help you find properties as unique as you. Visit them at AppalachianRealty.com or at their welcoming bungalow office on 
on Arlington Street, right near downtown. Appalachian Realty, helping people call Asheville home since 1979. Your business trip shouldn't start with a road trip. Hundreds of global destinations are just one connection away, starting at Asheville Regional Airport. Fly Allegiant, American, Delta, Elite, and United. Asheville Regional Airport, your local connection to the world. Visit flyavl.com to plan your next trip. Douglas MacArthur once said, The soldier above all others prays for peace, for it is a soldier who must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. Since 2006, Blue Ridge Honor Flight, a nonprofit organization, has been transporting veterans from World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War to Washington, D.C. to visit the memorials dedicated to their honor and sacrifice. On May 4th, 2019, they'll be flying again, giving those who have served our country a chance to experience the hope, healing, and welcome home they so deserve. For more information on how you can help or send a veteran to D.C., visit BlueRidgeHonorFlight.com. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars. Let me see what's This is Marilyn Ball, your host of Speaking of Travel. I'm here in the studio today with Jason Shoulder. He's a comedian. And Jason, I have to ask, why did the witch stay in a hotel? <laughs> I have no idea. She heard they had great broom service. <laughs> I love having a comedian on my show. I've got a million of them. I'm not kidding. So, Jason, you were telling us you went from – you were in New York. You suddenly are in Santa Fe. Yeah. I mean, I think of Santa Fe as tumbleweed and what you were saying about people just stopping on the road like you're in a stagecoach. What was that like for you? Well, uh, it was – I'll be honest. It was not an easy adjustment. I mean, uh, as an insult, they called me the native New Yorker. Like uh, that was what they called me in school. Um, all the kids – suddenly I was I was a minority, which was a weird experience. And um, I mean, it just gave me – it gave me a lot of empathy for other minorities, honestly, because you know nobody really likes to cry for the white man these days, and that's fine. But when I was old and I was a white kid in Santa Fe, New Mexico, most of the kids were Hispanic. And by the way, I want to be very clear, they refer to themselves as Hispanic because they're descendants from Spain. They're not people who've immigrated from Mexico. So for anybody who's going to PC, call me on that. I want them to know the history of it. So the Hispanic kids were very uh, resentful of not just the kids, but the Hispanic population was very resentful of the white population that was moving in and slowly taking over their town. And at this point has taken over their town. So I was there at a time when that transition was sort of happening. It wasn't just the artists and the hippies who were there anymore. It was sort of, you know, people like my family, a little more yuppie-esque and, uh, and we were not well received, you know, and I didn't, you know, when I grew up in New York, I mean, it was just easy for me, you know, it was a very, I mean, I, I hate saying it was easy. And then the next words out of my mouth are it was fairly homogenous. As a kid, you don't know what that is, but, you know, it was a pretty easy place to live. And now I was in a place where I was really the odd person out and, the kids there weren't afraid to call me on it. So I got and I had a lot of opportunities to fight. I never did. I haven't been in a fight in my entire life, but I had a lot of opportunities. And that was new for me. I'd never really 
I mean, my friends and I wrestled, but I'd never ha- felt threatened before. And my first day there, or maybe it was my first week, I was riding my bike to get, go play tennis. And we were riding by these kids and somebody in these like 14-year-old guys, they swiped the tennis racket off the back of my bicycle as I rode by them. And me being from New York, I parked my bike, I turned around and I walked back and asked for it back politely, you know, but it never occurred to me that I shouldn't do that, you know, and they were stunned. They gave it to me. Um, and they were packing this mud ball, and as I walked away, they threw the mud ball, <laughs> and I uh, just missed the gears of my pretty nice, you know, for the time, 10-speed bicycle. <laughs> uh, they missed it by inches. That was a pretty good throw. Um, and then, uh, but they got away with uh, a, 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 a can of tennis balls, so we ended up not being able to play because they stole our only can of balls. And then we were driving later with my dad, and then I saw them walking, carrying the balls. So I was like, Dad, those are the kids, and he he just didn't care, didn't stop, didn't do anything. So... um the honest answer is that was my experience growing up in Santa Fe. So uh, um, it's a beautiful place. As an adult, I've gone back there, and I really like it. And as very outdoors, I did a lot of mountain biking. I learned how to ski. I mean, well, back then it was BMX. Now it's mountain biking. But uh, So it enriched my life in a lot of ways, and it was very, very different. And I remember when I went back to New York, and I was seeing all the kids that I'd grown up with, like a lot had changed in me in that year and they'd stayed the same. And, and I was too, I was 10. I was too young to really process that, but I did feel it. And, uh, so, you know, I don't, I don't regret, obviously. I mean, whatever, what happens in your life is what makes you who you are. Um, well, did your family, did your dad, uh, travel around did you go on car trips or road oh, all trips? over the place yeah we did a lot of we did a lot of hikes my dad likes to go out to you know i remember bandoliers this beautiful rock formation place we would do a lot of that kind of seeing the area we'd always go hike in the hills when the uh when the aspens were turning that's one of the most beautiful things in the world if you haven't seen the aspens turn in the fall uh, I highly recommend going someplace where they have aspen trees. I mean, there's just nothing more colorful and beautiful than that. So we would do that a lot. Uh, we would drive to, um, I think, either Flagstaff. I'm trying to remember where it was. But we would drive somewhere, wherever they would have the hot air balloon launch. And we'd watch, like, hundreds of hot air balloons take off at once and eat fried bread at, like, sunrise. I remember that. Uh, so, yeah, my dad was pretty good about it. That and he, he, my dad got into real estate. He, he, he met the only other two Jewish guys in Santa Fe, and the three of them formed this real estate group, and they bought up all this property because they could see that Santa Fe was going to be really valuable one day. What they didn't know is there was going to be an oil crisis between then and when Santa Fe would become valuable, uh, losing all that property and money. And I won't tell the full story, but, uh, um, but it was. Yeah, my dad is a visionary. He can really see what a place is going to be. Unfortunately, um, he 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 doesn't realize there's a valley between him and the next mountaintop, and that's happened to him multiple times. And real estate is his drug of choice. But uh, he was right. I mean, Santa Fe is the place that he knew it would be in the '70s, and so I, I got to hand it to him for that. So, what did you end up doing? Um, you stayed there through high school. I stayed there for five years. Um, and the schools were – the public schools were pretty bad. So my dad had me skip a grade, which was definitely the worst social decision of my life. But he had me skip a grade so I could get into the private school sooner. And then I just slowly started to – as you know, as 
11, 12, 13, you don't want to be a year younger than everybody. And I have a late birthday, so I was a year and a half younger than some people. It was a really bad situation for me. So by ninth grade, I was a wreck. Socially, academically, my life had bottomed out. He'd gotten remarried. They'd had another kid. Um, I'm very close to my brother, um, but it wasn't easy having a stepmom. And so I, I reached a point that I had to leave home, and I went to boarding school. And I, and I also had to repeat ninth grade, and I didn't want to repeat, which was fine because it got me back on track. I didn't have any feelings about it, but I didn't want to do it at the very small private school where I was already having social problems. I wasn't going to then be the kid who looked like he failed. So I went to boarding school where everybody was repeating grades. That's pretty normal in boarding school because everyone's just trying to get in a better college. And and it was fine. I mean, you know, boarding school had its ups and downs. High schools is what it is for people. But as far as uh, leaving New Mexico and going to Colorado for school, that was a that was a positive choice. And for then, me. where did you end up going to college? I went to college in California. Oh boy! So yeah. you really went all the way over to the west. Yeah, I mean, ironically, my dad wanted me to go to boarding school in Colorado. Um, I mean, excuse me, my dad wanted me to go to boarding school in California. I wanted to ski. At that point in my life, all I wanted to do was ski. By the time I was done with high school, all I wanted to do was surf, which, by the way, I've only done once. And but I just decided I wanted to go to California, and I uh, we had. One of the virtues of going to a private school like this is they host a college day and all the colleges want these kids because they've got money and they're generally better educated and stuff. So we didn't have the money, but I had a decent education. And so uh, I fell in love with Pitzer College. Like I met the rep. I looked. It was just I had like this instant connection with this school based on nothing. And uh, and I just knew that's where I wanted to go. And then I went and toured colleges in California with my mom. And I may or may not have also toured them with my dad, but I, after going through all of these phases, I I was convinced that Pitzer was the right place for me, and it was. That was that was college is where I really came into my own. It's where I found friends who I resonated with. I found art. I was I graduated with a degree in fine arts, and I really sort of I found me in college. I mean, I've changed a lot since then, <laughs> for better and for worse, but. Uh, I wish I'd known I wanted to be a comedian back then. I would have liked to have started this career a little younger. I started when I was 46. Oh, well, <laughs> so, better late than never. Yeah. But that's where you first started to travel, like yeah, I go went abroad? To, yep. Uh, when I was a junior in college, um, I wanted to go to Israel, but the Gulf War broke out. So they said, well, you speak Spanish. We'll send you to Ecuador instead. And again, that's, you know, set me on an interesting path. I mean, I met a lot of great people, some of whom I'm still friends with. Some European people I met in Ecuador, I'm still really good friends with. I saw them a couple summers ago when I took my daughter to Europe. We stayed with one of the people I met in in Ecuador. So, yeah. Wow. Well, when we come back, let's pick up right there sure. because, you know, stepping out, what I was saying in the in the introduction, just being able to step out of that comfort zone and you've it sounds to me, have done that quite a few times in your life. And here you are now doing the stand-up. And and I want to hear about taking your daughter to Europe. How fun must that, <laughs> that have been, great. right? Yeah. Yep. All right. This is Jason Shoulder. He's here with us today in the studio. I'm Marilyn Ball. We'll be right back. This is Tina Kinsey with Asheville Regional Airport, and I have a travel tip for you today. Do you know that airports all have three-letter airport codes that are used in many ways, including for booking and baggage routing? 
It's a good idea to educate yourself about your destination airport's three-letter code. You can then check the airline's baggage routing tag to ensure the correct airport destination is listed. Why is this important? While Asheville Regional Airport's code is intuitive, AVL, there are other airports that don't correlate quite as well to the airport's name. Take New Orleans, for example. The code for Louis Armstrong Airport, located in New Orleans, is MSY. I hope you get to take a trip soon, and we would welcome you at AVL. Asheville Regional Airport. Take the easy way out. Any real estate company's success is a reflection of its attention and care provided to its clients. Appalachian Realty Associates are proven to have the best agents around. And if you're looking for a place in Asheville and Western North Carolina, they'll help you find properties as unique as you are. Visit them at AppalachianRealty.com or at their welcoming bungalow office on Arlington Street near downtown. Appalachian Realty, helping people call Asheville home since 1979. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring It's time to like welcome in the new year with our good pal Doc Lawrence as he takes us on a journey down the Gourmet Highway. And what better way to begin the year than a visit to Mont Eagle, Tennessee. Hey, Happy New Year, Doc. We're so excited to hear about this lovely town in the Cumberland Plateau region of Tennessee. Tell us what's going on there. Marilyn, I have a question for our listeners. Where do you think the great playwright Tennessee Williams gave the bulk of his enormous estate upon his death. The answer is going to be surprising. It's where I am right now, the University of the South in Swanee, Tennessee, on top of Mount Eagle. Now, Mount Eagle, Maryland, is the highest point I've been to in Tennessee, way outside the Smoky Mountains. And this is a community that when you get up in the morning, and you reach up to touch the sun, you can feel the presence of God. It's just that nice here, and it's so beautiful. This is the home of one of the great institutions in America, the University of the South at Swanee. And Mont Eagle is a compendium of all these wonderful communities that tie in rural Tennessee and the rural South to things that make you imagine being at Cambridge and Oxford University in England. The university here is considered to be one of the most beautiful structures and marvelous campuses in all of North America. And when you see these Gothic stone buildings and these wonderful young people, some of whom still wear the gowns and the caps with the professors that will remind you of the dons at the great universities of England, you know that you're in the presence of greatness. But Mont Eagle and Swanee are a lot more than a university, Maryland, because right here is one of the great, maybe the greatest, barbecue restaurants in all of the South, and that's the world-renowned Jim Oliver Smokehouse, where they not only serve barbecue seven days a week, and they make barbecue sauce with just a dollop of Tennessee whiskey in every bottle, but it's the home also of the Leuven Brothers Museum. Now, Maryland, that's not going to mean a lot to most of the listeners, but if you talk to Paul Simon or Bob Dylan, you'll know that this is the presence of greatness. 
The Living Brothers gave us what we call close harmony, and that's something that women do very well and men have difficulty in doing. But it's the marriage of two voices, almost identical, but a pitch different. And you think of Simon and Garfunkel and the Everly Brothers, and you kind of get the idea when you're humming the sounds of silence or dream. It's just that nice and that sweet. There's a lot to do here if you like divine weather, if you like clouds, if you're not afraid of heights, and you enjoy immersing yourself in history with very few parallels. But you know, Marilyn, you and I love to eat in elegant settings. And there's more here than barbecue. The High Point restaurant here is the best that you would find east of the Mississippi River. It is elevated cuisine. It's American high cuisine. I know that you and I both love lobster and filet mignon. And here at High Point, where I plan to dine tonight, Marilyn, we could get us in the future soon, I hope, a filet, a lobster, and a reserve tempranillo from Spain, and maybe finish off with a glass of late harvest wine from one of the wonderful local wineries here, like Bean Creek. This is the high city. This is the high culture. This is almost the midpoint between Chattanooga on one end of Tennessee and Memphis on the other. And it is a good point because the vantage is so high. The temperature is so great. The diversity is so profound. And it is core Tennessee and core Southern culture. Marilyn, just think. Every time that you see a streetcar named Desire or Cat on a Hot Tin Roof written by the great playwright Tennessee Williams, the proceeds from that that go to Tennessee Williams Estate is funding the Tennessee Williams Center for the Performing Arts here and the Southern Writers Project, one of the top fund endowments for writers in the United States. I love paradise, I love Tennessee, and I love the South. But Marilyn, I think it's time to get dressed, head on over to Jim Oliver's Smokehouse tonight, and I'm going to listen to some country music and have some barbecue, and then I'm going to hit the road. So for now, this is Doc Lawrence for Marilyn Ball, and speaking of travel, on the Gourmet Highway, saying, I hope to see you soon in your hometown. Thanks, Doc. What a wonderful place to visit. Here's to a great new year traveling along the Gourmet Highway. And you can follow Doc's journey on the Gourmet Highway by visiting thegourmethighway.com. Well, we're visiting here in the studio with Jason Shoulder. He's a comedian and a traveler, an inventor, and an entrepreneur. You just have so many things going on, Jason. I have too many things going on. Ah, it's all good. So uh, let's pick right back up because you were telling us about going to Ecuador. But first I have to ask, do you know where sheep go on vacation? <laughs> no. They go to the Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's put you, this kid who grew up in New York, spent this time in Santa Fe, went to boarding school. Now he's out in California, loving it, doing his thing, and here you are in Ecuador. What was that like? Uh, well, Ecuador was hands down one of the greatest experiences of my life, uh, but it didn't start out that way. My first day there, I, first I got there late, like our plane got canceled, so I ended up, at least I was with someone else who was going, so we kind of got stuck together, which was great. We got to know each other. Um, but our very first day, 
um, we walked out of the hotel. I'm wearing my Grateful Dead tie-dye shirt, which, you know, in hindsight looks like a bullseye. And this pickup truck drives by, and these kids stand up from the back of the pickup truck and just tag us with water balloons. This is my first 60 seconds outdoors in in Ecuador. And uh, one of the women I was walking with said, oh, I heard that it's like some holiday here where they throw water at people. I was like, no, it's not. We're white. They hate us. They're, this, is, this is welcome to Ecuador because that was my childhood growing up in Santa Fe. Well, turns out she was right and I was wrong. It was just this like two-day festival, which is they celebrate by throwing water balloons. So like all the buses had broken windows, like which is – Really dangerous, and people are sitting in the bus, and people are th- breaking the windows and throwing them, uh, throwing these water balloons at them. But uh, that was my first, that was my first day in Ecuador. But it was uphill from there, and that was really where I sort of gained my my travel legs. Like uh, b- before, I've done a lot of traveling because my family uh, is from Germany, is from Europe, um, and so when I was a kid, my grandparents moved back to Europe. They moved to Switzerland. And so I'd gone back and forth there a lot with my mom and my dad took me to France and uh, Israel one year as part of a, like a belated bar mitzvah present. And, but I'd always traveled with my family. So this is my first time being on my own. And by the end of this time in, in uh, Ecuador, I was pretty, pretty road wise. You know, uh, I traveled a lot on tops of buses and just, I was fluent. I'm pretty, I mean, compared to most people traveling, I'm fluent in Spanish. I'm, I'm conversational. I would not call myself fluent, but, uh, by the, you know, I was at that point I was dreaming in Spanish. I lived there for six months. Uh, I remember when I came back and I had a dream about my Ecuadorian host family and they were speaking English. I knew that I had left the building as far as Ecuador was concerned. Um, but anyway, so you came back and you still had some college to go. I had one year of college left to go Mm -hmm. and I suffered through it. And, uh, and it was great in terms of, I did my senior show. I really delved into myself as an artist. Um, I had, I I had a really successful senior show as far as I did four paintings. I was really proud of had a total mental breakdown in the middle of it. I mean, like complete throwing paint, crying, like losing myself in the middle of my spring break because I had like 10 days after spring break to to do the show. I had the first show. I drew the short straw on the show schedule. Uh, But I ended up, you know, coming through that and making some amazing art. And but I couldn't wait to leave the country again. I had been bitten by the bug. Uh, I was also young and a little uh, disillusioned with the country I was living in. And um I just couldn't wait to leave again. And I'd read a bunch of books by Milan Kundera, and I wanted to go live his life. So I went to Prague to teach English so I could, you know, live like the characters in his books. You're just classic, Jason. <laughs> it's a classic story. I love it. Well, when, I, when we come back, I want to talk about that. I mean, really, teaching English in Prague, now you're in, uh, you know, there's just, I love when people tell me that they they suddenly get it, and traveling is something that is important. And again, you know, talking about just getting out of that familiar zone and recognizing when you were in Ecuador that I'm sure every day was waking up to a new situation and you had to be kind of on your toes and know what to do. And let's talk about that. We'll talk about that and how that also relates to getting up on stage and and telling jokes. Sounds being great. funny. All right. Jason Shoulder is here in the studio. I'm really excited. We'll be right back.
Douglas MacArthur once said, The soldier above all others prays for peace, for it is a soldier who must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. Since 2006, Blue Ridge Honor Flight, a nonprofit organization, has been transporting veterans from World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War to Washington, D.C. to visit the memorials dedicated to their honor and sacrifice. On May 4th, 2019, they'll be flying again, giving those who have served our country a chance to experience the hope, healing, and welcome home they so deserve. For more information on how you can help or send a veteran to D.C., visit BlueRidgeHonorFlight.com. With 50 flights every day to and from cities like Atlanta, Charlotte, and Chicago, you can fly to hundreds of worldwide destinations with one easy connection. Choose Allegiant, American, Delta, Elite, or United right here from Asheville Regional Airport. And when you fly home, you're home. Asheville Regional Airport. Take the easy way out. People call Asheville home for all different reasons, and they all mean a better quality of living that reflects their very own uniqueness. Whether you're looking for a funky loft in downtown Asheville, an arts and crafts bungalow in a walkable community, or a small farm to create your own artistic legacy, Appalachian Realty Associates will help you find properties as unique as you. Visit them at AppalachianRealty.com or at their welcoming bungalow office on Arlington Street, right near downtown. Appalachian Realty, helping people call Asheville home since 1979. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars, and let me see what spring Welcome back. Speaking of travel, it's Marilyn Ball, your host, and I am really excited. I'm here with Jason Shoulder. He's a funny guy, and Jason, I love hearing this uh, segue from your growing up and traveling with your folks, but it's always your family, and then you go on a semester away, and um, next thing you know, you're in, where were you in, in, in Prague, Prague yeah. teaching? So what was that like? Well, uh, I started off by teaching in a summer camp, which was awesome. I mean, we were just living at the camp, and, and the kids were adorable. They were, you know, I think my oldest kids were 14 or something like that, and and they were just really cool. And I just thought it was amazing that ki- I went to summer camp. But when I went to summer camp, it was a bunch of spoiled rich kids and ride horseback. These kids went to summer camp to learn English. And I was really impressed by that. It was a two-week camp, and I was there for eight weeks. So I had four different groups. And I mean, I just – I mean, I loved it. And I was, you know, pretty well-received as a teacher. So the director of the camp – got me a job in Prague teaching at a technical school, teaching English. And uh, and then I think she, somehow I got a second teaching job there. I had a, a lot of different teaching situations in Prague. I, I remember there's one guy who – I play guitar badly and I wanted a guitar and there's a guy who owned a guitar shop. So I traded him English lessons, private English lessons for a guitar, <laughs> which I ended up abandoning that guitar in Turkey by accident. But uh, – um, so I taught in Prague for about a year, and I loved it, but also – this is 1992. So this is when Prague was in transition, and and being an American was like being a movie star when I arrived. It was like being a virus by the time I left. Like they were – by the time I left, I spoke enough Czech that I could understand the drunk Czech guys on the bus who were talking – 
smack about me as a foreigner, like how many foreigners and Americans, they were talking all this stuff. And I said back to them in check, I said, you know, not all of us are that bad. Like I live in the same housing project you do and I teach English and, you know, and I work hard and I live on local wages and, you know, like I'm not a part of the problem. I'm here to help. And they were like, and they were pretty embarrassed because they had no idea that I would have understood them. I I didn't understand all of it, but I understood enough. I can usually tell when people are talking about me. (laughs) That's sort of the universal language. But, um, but after being there through most of the winter, I was pretty depressed. Like the sun went behind the cloud in October and didn't come out until April. And in that time, I just, I, I smoked too much. I drank too much. I just had to leave. And during my holiday break, I had gone to Switzerland and Denmark and I saw the sun, even though it was Europe, it was Western Europe. And the difference between Eastern Europe and Western Europe, climate wise, and and especially then, like uh, just Eastern Europe was still really a dark, like coal laden place. Western Europe was, you know, modern and, and beautiful. And, and after seeing the sun and then going back to Prague and back to this kind of depressing Eastern Europe that really hadn't evolved since the 50s or 40s in some cases, um, I had to leave. And so I, I found some people to replace me in all my jobs and I went to Turkey. And I really went to Turkey because when I was in – I would visit Berlin. I fell in love with this Russian girl in Berlin and I would visit Berlin a lot. And eat the falafels. I was a semi-vegetarian back then. And I went to Turkey because the falafels came from all the Turkish restaurants. And I thought I would be able to find great falafels in Turkey. I I never found a single falafel in Turkey. That is just a, you know, a business decision that the kebab houses made in Berlin or probably anywhere in Western Europe in order to serve their non-meat-eating community but still maintain an, an audience. So... I never had in the two and a half months I was in Turkey. I didn't get a single falafel. They had a lot of really good kebab, and uh, and I just went down there to be in the sun, you know. And so I stayed on an island for a couple of weeks and kind of regrouped, and then went to. Uh, I started hitchhiking around the country. I hitchhiked the entire, more or less the entire country of Turkey, all the way to like the Iranian border where I wouldn't let anybody see my passport. I went to the city of Ani, which is a holy city for the Armenians. The Turks took it from the Armenians, and it's a contentious. That's a contentious situation. But when I meet Armenians and they found out I've been to Ani, it's like, it's like meeting for, for them. It's like meeting someone who's seen God. They, they want to hear about it because that's really their holy city. So that was pretty impactful when I got back to L.A. and met. Actually, my you know the first time I knowingly met Armenian people was when I was back in L.A. having been on the border of, of Armenia. Anyway, so I kicked around Turkey for a while and then uh, really missed my Russian girl. So I went back to Berlin, uh, but she was over me by then. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, and then I came back to the States. My dad got remarried to someone he'd been with for a while. I didn't want to miss the wedding. And I came back and I started applying to art schools and got back into my art and getting into galleries. And just when I finally got into a gallery, I had already bought my return ticket to Europe. And I went back to Europe for, I think, for six months for a summer or something like that. And then I got a call in Europe that one of my paintings was possibly going to sell. And so I said, all right, I'll come back to the States and be with my art. And then it didn't sell. And then I never left again. I mean, I've, I've traveled, but I didn't leave like to move because I was going to split my time between Berlin and LA. I had actually interviewed with the art school there and was trying to get into a graduate program at the art school in Berlin. And they're so nice. Like, actually, 
just based on somebody who knew somebody got to sit down and meet with the art professors and the directors of the school who could have made that decision out of not, I mean, from zero, you know, here that would never happen. You have to go through some crazy paperwork process to even get a student led tour. So uh, I was really considering going back, uh, but then I just kind of got nestled back into life in the States and, and it didn't, make sense anymore to keep trying to live the two different lives there, there was really more it was more different than i realized it was going to be so you were doing your art were you always into yoga uh i did yoga in college when i was in college i did two semesters of yoga with this sikh couple uh the first semester was with the man and the second semester was with the woman and that's only because i took it at different times a day they both taught all the time and they were kundalini yoga teachers and wonderful, wonderful people. And uh, I, I was just like, I'm from New York. I'm a Jew. I'm angry, you know. And, and, and I just felt like I got to do something with this anger. And I took these yoga classes. And I, I'll tell you, that kundalini yoga will breathe the anger right out of you. And, and I just really fell in love with it. And then I never really did it again. I, first of all, I didn't know like, that there were different kinds of yoga. Now there's yoga on every corner and every studio's got its own philosophy. But back then it was just like, oh, this thing called yoga. There were still different kinds, but most of us didn't know that. So that was my, my first introduction to it. And I absolutely loved it. It changed my life completely. It just really calmed me down. Um, not that I had to go do it to calm down, just doing it for a year calmed me down. And... Uh, and then when I was 30, I had like a – within three weeks, I got rear-ended in my car and then I f- took a header off my mountain bike and I really threw my back – I was helping a friend move. My back seized up and I – I mean it was months before I could walk again. And uh, and in that time when I started trying to rehabilitate, I re-found yoga. And then I was also looking for ways to help my back all the time and that's ultimately what led me to creating the eggs. Because I was seeing all these physical therapists and chiropractors, and when I laid on the egg, I got this you know back adjustment that I was paying my chiropractor thirty five bucks a session for. It's like I can get this for free. <laughs> you know, all I need is this piece of foam. The original ones were made out of wood, but I was like, the only thing I need is this you know oval shaped product. And I was like, I bet everybody would want to feel this good. I could probably sell these, and that's how I ended up doing that. And then just to full circle it to the comedy, I now teach yoga and. It's I, at some point in my teaching, it became more important to me to make my students laugh than to get them to line up right in the posture. That's also important to me because I have an Iyengar background. I'm very like, you know, very sort of strict and alignment oriented and, and focused as a teacher. But it really became important to me that they laugh. And somebody was like, you're in the wrong profession. You shouldn't be teaching yoga. You should be doing comedy. And so for my 46th birthday, that was my gift to myself. I did five minutes on stage, figured I'd be terrible, and I would never have to do it again. That was certainly my mother's hope. and uh, um, But it wasn't terrible. And I was really, like, high as a kite. It, I mean, if you're born to do comedy, and it's possible that I am, if you're born to do comedy, finding it is like finding, you know, I can only say it's like finding your drug of choice. You know, which is not a great analogy because no one should do drugs, but it's it is that intoxicating and it's that addictive. And when I go a few days without being on stage, I mean, I get you know the shakes, I get itchy, and not, and I'm like, what is wrong with me? And then I realize, oh, I haven't been on stage in a few days. I go on stage, whether I do well or do badly, 
at least I got my fix. Well, you know, the, it it's really a great um, story of being able to, and maybe you were doing it, maybe it wasn't conscious, but always kind of stepping out into taking a little bit of a risk, doing so. I mean, just the description of you sitting on top of buses and, you know, doing things that maybe you, you never did before. And you're like, oh, what the heck? I'm I'm stepping out. And now you're doing that with comedy um, is brave. I, I say you're a courageous guy, Jason, in addition to everything else. And I would imagine the traveling certainly was a part of all of that. I can't thank you enough for being on the show. And I feel like I'm like you, I'm already getting kind of shakes that we need to do this more. So I'll come back please anytime. come back yeah. because um, I have to say, what did one volcano say to the other volcano? <laughs> I'm afraid to ask. I lava you. <laughs> and that's how we feel here. So thank you, Jason, for being on the thank show. Thank you, Marilyn. You bet. This is Marilyn Ball. Happy New Year. Now go out and do some fun things. Take a risk. Tell a joke. Be funny. Try something new. And remember, life is short. Don't postpone joy. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bear, man. I breathe the mountain air, man. I travel, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been to Reno, Chicago, Fargo, Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Madawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo, Tocopilla, Baron, Quilla, and